Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare. A medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine, he is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right, well, welcome to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. As always, a pleasure to be here at the clinic with our fellow Catholic listeners. Here, we're going to talk about being Catholic. We're going to learn about being Catholic so that we can be Catholic. I always say we got to start thinking like Catholics so that we can live like Catholics, so that we can say that we are Catholics. That's how we become Catholics. It's just a matter of exercise, a matter of practice, a matter of how we live our lives. And that's how people recognize that we're practice. I got to say, happy Easter. We are on Easter tide here. We're in the, in the octave of Easter, biggest celebration of the church year. Um, you know, there, we're going to talk a little bit about what octaves are. We're going to talk about a little bit why this is important. But as we get the show started here, why don't we get started with our prayer? We are in Easter tide, so we're not going to say the Angelus. We're going to say the Regina Celli. So help me out here. And if anybody knows it, that's great. It's not one that we memorize necessarily because we don't say it as often as the Angelus. But if I want my listeners to get used to saying that during Easter time, we don't say the Angelus, we say the Regina Celli. So, uh, and I'm going to put a link to that on, on the on the talk as well. So you can take a look at and see what the prayer says. But I'm going to go ahead and start praying. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. <clears throat> Queen of heaven, rejoice, alleluia. For he whom you did merit to bear, alleluia, has risen as he said, alleluia. Pray for us to God, alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary, alleluia, for the Lord has truly risen, alleluia. Let us pray. O God, who gave joy to the world through the resurrection of thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, grant we beseech thee that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, his mother, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we are in Eastertide. You know, the, the Feast of Eastertide starts with, or the Octave of Easter starts with, obviously, Easter Sunday, uh, starting from the Vigil Mass of Easter, and it goes all through Divine Mercy Sunday. This is going to be very, very important to talk about. It means a lot for us as Catholics to really think about what's being offered us uh, here during this week and what Divine Mercy Sunday means. But before that, a little bit of housekeeping. We have some conferences coming up. The first conference I have coming up myself, if anybody is in the Pomona area this uh, coming weekend, Saturday, April 23rd, there's going to be a conference on Divine Mercy. And it's going to be at St. Madeline Church uh, in Pomona. The address is at 931 East Kingsley Avenue in Pomona. Again, it's going to be this Saturday, April 23rd. It starts at 7, uh, 7 a.m. with confession, 7 to 9 a.m. Then there's going to be the procession of the Blessed Sacrament uh, with presentation. Uh, I'm going to give a talk at 1030 in English and 1130 in Spanish, and it's going to be Divine Mercy and it, I'm going to be really talking about our spiritual battles and what that means. What does divine mercy have to do with our spiritual battles, especially in the ministry of deliverance? How do we view it? What is it that we need to think about? How do we pray about it? How do we think about it so that we are efficacious in keeping our focus on Christ and really driving out anything that's negative, anything that's keeping us uh, from really putting Christ first in our life? Everything else is a distraction. And really, that's what, you know, at the end of the day, that's what the enemy wants. They want to distract us from being able to focus on Christ. So again, that's this Saturday. If anybody can make it, that's great. I'll be there. I'll be happy to talk to any of the participants there. Let me know you're from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, we can even have a little conference there if you want. 
uh, afterwards. So I think that would be very fun. The other conferences that are coming up, of course, is Marriage and Family Conference. That's going to be May 7th uh, at the historic Sacred Heart Chapel. Uh, it's going to be at, at uh, 381 West Center in Covina, California. Um, that's going to be May 7th, 2022, uh, Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. The, the speakers are going to be Mary Danielle Barber, Terry Barber, uh, and myself. And I think it's always great to talk about the family, talk about marriage, talk about what it means as a sacrament, because sometimes we forget, you know, it's so commonplace that it becomes ordinary after a while. And we forget how extraordinary the sacrament of marriage really is. It's really out of this world when you think about it, just like all the other sacraments. We give a lot of reverence to their sacraments. We think about confession and we think, yes, absolutely, I need to go to confession. It's an important sacrament. Of course, we think about the Eucharist. We think about holy orders a lot because we see priests, we see nuns, and we feel very holy around them. And we think, man, they really point the way to Christ for us, not, not just because of how they act, how they dress, everything, their prayers, their prayer life. Well, guess what? Marriage is a sacrament too. And it has a lot of intricacies and a lot of ways that the world wants to destroy it. Uh, Sister Lucia from Fatima told us that that's the final battle. That's the final battle the devil wants to wage against the church is against the family. So I think it's very important to go to this conference to really hear the talks that we're going to give and discuss why is marriage so important? What does it mean in our lives? Another conference for the guys, Saturday, June 18th, 2022, uh, also at the historic Sacred Heart Chapel is the men's conference. Now it's going to be Jesse Romero, Terry Barber, and Ruben Nav are going to be speakers. I'm going to try my best to be there uh, as well. I love to sit and just kind of listen and hear what they have to say. Think about my own manhood. What does that mean for us as Catholic men? What does it mean for us to be Catholic men? And what are we faced with? What are the challenges of the world that tell us that we need to be something different? That's important. And lastly, there's Liber Cristo retreats. And that is important. I love the Liber Cristo movement. I think it's probably the, the most top-notch, best way to go about deliverance, about exorcism. Of course, Father Ripperger, Kyle Clement are uh, heading that movement. Uh, and if you go to our website, virginmostpowerfulradio.org, you'll see the Conference on Marriage on the Family. You can register there. You'll see the Conference for the Men's Conference. You can register there. And there is a website. There, I'm sorry, there's an email, Monte Cristo. I'm sorry, Monte Cristolic. Uh, you'll have to see it there on the website. It's spelled M-O-N-T-E-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-L-L-C at gmail.com. If you go to our website, you'll see it there under the Libra Cristo Retreats. There's some great retreats. One of them is Reclaiming Theology Retreat with Kyle Clement. There's a father-son retreat with Father Ripperger, and there is a mother-daughter retreat also with Father Ripperger. There's different dates there. So if you want to inquire about those retreats, always going to help us to think like Catholics, to live like Catholics, and to be Catholic. And that's important. Well, let's talk about Easter a little bit. Let's talk about what it means to be an Easter and what it really means to have an octave in the Catholic Church. You know, what is an octave? An octave is an eight-day celebration of the church. And why eight days? Because if you think about it, if anybody ever listens to different talks um, from the Divine Mercy Fathers. If anybody's ever heard of Father Chris Alar, I love listening to his talks. He's very soothing as I'm working, different things aside from listening to, obviously, our shows from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I like listening to Dr. Father Chris Alar with the Divine Mercy Fathers because he really knows how to teach the catechism of the church well. He gets to the basics. And quite frankly, sometimes he says, you know, I'm just giving you guys talks based on my seminary lectures. And he gave a great talk on Divine Mercy. I think it was actually last year's talk or two years ago. But of course, it's very pertinent to any Divine Mercy talk. One of the things I learned was he was talking about the octave and he was saying, why eight days? He said, because eight actually represents the celebration in heaven. It's the eternity part of our celebration. You know, when we look at creation, we say, oh, well, the number for, for completeness is seven. And he said, that's 
that's complete here on earth. He's all, but the eighth day, that's the eighth, the, the day for heaven. And you notice every Sunday is eight days. Well, an octave, I'm going to put a little Catholic, a link to this Catholic uh, article that I found. And it says, what is an octave? An octave is an eight-day period during which Easter or Christmas is celebrated and includes the actual feast. The eighth day is also called the octave or the eighth day, the octave day. And the days in between are said to be within the octave. So it is a uh, celebration of eight days. So it's interesting to think about that because a lot of times we think about you know, going to weddings, uh, we, we go to weddings and it's one day celebration and say, wow, you know, I went to that wedding and the, the mass was okay. The wedding was okay. People don't, but most people go there for the party, right? And most people say, well, what kind of food are they going to have? Or what's going to go on at the party? Where is it going to be? Am I going to have a good time? And, you know, a lot of people focus on the celebration part. They don't necessarily focus on the sacrament part of the marriage. And I remember a lot of times hearing family members or different friends who went to different weddings and they said, wow, we were there till about 2 a.m. and we couldn't believe it. Some people were there till 3 a.m. because they partied all night and they said, yeah, this is a great celebration, this wedding. You know, I mentioned the wedding feast because obviously every time we receive communion, every time we're coming closer to Christ, it's part of our wedding. It's our spiritual wedding. We, we're going to be wed to Christ. Well, the church is the bride of the bridegroom. We are the church. The interesting thing, though, is that usually Catholic weddings, they last one day. You go to the wedding, you have the, the celebration at night, and then the next day, that's it. There's no more there's no further celebration usually. Um, it's just one day. I remember one of my friends who was getting married and he was part of the Hindu religion. And when they celebrated, they celebrated for days, days at a time. It wasn't just one day. We said, what do you mean you're celebrating for days? He said, yeah, you're going to be invited to my wedding. And we thought, oh, it's just one day. And come to find out that when me and some of my friends were invited, we'd never been to uh, uh, one of the weddings from from his culture. And we went to go see what it was. He invited us. We didn't know what, what it was. But one of the things that I found interesting was he said, yeah, this is this is already our fourth day of, of, of the wedding feast. And we were pretty awestruck. And I was, I was surprised. I was back in college and um, I was surprised. And I thought, wait a minute, you've been getting married for four days. He's all, no, 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 you get married one day, but the celebration is multiple days. There's different things that we do. And I thought to myself, that's pretty interesting. And it really brought back to me. And I thought, well, why don't we do that? Why, how come as Catholics, we don't do that? We just have a one day celebration of a wedding. But as I started learning more about my faith, as, as I started learning more about the way that we celebrate as Catholics, we actually kind of do the same thing. It's just that we don't talk about it much. We, you know, we go to church on Christmas. So we say, oh, Christmas Eve, or we go to midnight mass or Christmas day, or for Easter, we go to the, uh, you know, we might go to the Easter vigil. We might go Easter Sunday and the church gets packed and then that's it. And then we don't think that we're still celebrating Easter, but the way that the church celebrates it is the octave. It's actually an eight day celebration, two big octaves during the year, Christmas octave, Easter octave, which we are in now, there used to be the octave of Pentecost. And we can talk about that as we come to the Feast of Pentecost. And what happened to that? Well, there's a question as to whether or not Pope Paul VI uh, stopped that octave or changed or what exactly happened. And we'll look into that when we get closer to Pentecost here during this Easter season. But the reality is Christmas and Easter are eight-day celebrations. They're both octaves. Why is this important to consider? Because we need to remember that we're still celebrating. 
we're still in the midst of Easter. We are not done celebrating. In fact, in the Eastern Church, this is called Bright Week. You know, today is Bright Wednesday. There was Bright Monday, Bright Tuesday, Bright Wednesday, and so on and so forth. It's a continued celebration, most important celebration of the year. We're going to talk more about why that's important and really what starts and what ends each octave. That's going to be key to think about, especially as we're thinking about Divine Mercy Sunday. Why is it important and what does it mean to us as, as Catholics? More after the break. All right. Well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. Always a pleasure to have you here at the clinic where we talk about our spiritual health, our mental health, and of course, our physical health. Um, it's all happening at the same time. And currently, we're going to take our, our mind, spirit, and our bodies into the Easter season. And we're going to talk about why this is important. Why are we talking about octaves? Why, why does the number eight even matter? Well, let's read this article from Catholic Culture. And it says, what's in a number? Bring us back to dough. Why eight days? The number eight is supposed to represent perfection or rest. And this is an eternity, right? Some have traced the origins back to Jewish festival customs, such as circumcision of Jewish boys was on the eighth day. So this is true. And the Feast of the Tabernacles lasted seven, seven days and concluded with a solemnity on the eighth day, forming an octave. The Feast of the Dedication of the Temple by Solomon and Purification lasted eight days. And... This is what's really important for us as Catholics. So why does it matter that that's the truth in the Jewish tradition? Why? So what if that meant was important for the Jewish tradition? How does that translate to Catholicism? Listen to this part. It is also said that Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day. If you think about it, the Jews always celebrated the Sabbath, right? Which was the Saturday. The Sabbath was, was the day they celebrated. Why Sundays? All of a sudden, Jesus rose on the eighth day, not on the Sabbath but on the eighth day, which was Sunday. This is why Sundays are considered on par with solemnities. Every Sunday is a special solemnity. It's a feast day. That's why we go to Mass. Every Sunday, we commemorate the resurrection. And this is what's believed. The, the development of octaves within the liturgical year was gradual, and it was not until the eighth century that Rome celebrated octaves for certain feasts. Well, why is this important for us as Easter? Let's think about it a little bit from, from uh, Christmas time, if you will. What, what does it matter as far as Christmas time? We know that it's an octave, but the question arose in trying to explain the application of music theory, because there's eight notes of music to the liturgy. If January 1st is the Feast of Mary, how is this repeating the Feast of Christmas? This article talks about music, and it's actually really important. Music has eight notes. It's do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do, and it goes back to the first note. It goes back to do. So the octave is supposed to be completeness, complete rest. And this was the answer. First, the actual title of the feast is Octave Day of Christmas and Solemnity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. Within this feast is multiple layers, but the title itself indicates a feast of our Lord, repeating the solemnity of Christmas, but also honors Mary as the Mother of God. The Mass readings return to the stable at Bethlehem, picking up right after the gospel for midnight mass of Christmas. The shepherds went in haste to the stable with Mary pondering all these things in her heart and ends with the circumcision. The gospel indicates this is both a, both a feast of Jesus and Mary. Why is this important? Why do I bring this up? A lot of us think about that and we say, you know, Christmas, and then it goes back to Mary and uh, on, the, on the feast of the solemnity of the mother of God, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Why is that important? And what does that have to do with Christmas? Obviously it brings us back to without Mary having said yes to God, we wouldn't have had the birth of Christ. Right. So we start with Christmas, the birth of Christ goes and we end that octave. The book ends 
our Christmas and our lady and it takes us back to the birth of christ that's the whole purpose of you know when we read about our lady when we read about her life her mission her whole purpose on earth was to be the mother of god what a beautiful mission what does this have to do with easter it's important to understand this because now we're going to celebrate easter and what's the octave of easter it starts with easter but it ends with divine mercy sunday and just like Christmas, we can easily say, well, of course, it's easy to make the, the link between our Lord being born and then celebrating Our Lady because she's the mother. And of course, we go back to the octave, we celebrate Our Lady, and it reminds us of Christmas. Well, what does Divine Mercy Sunday have to do with the resurrection? Why is this even important? Why are the bookends of the celebration of Easter, Easter Sunday, and Divine Mercy? because it takes us right back to Easter Sunday. What's the purpose of Easter? It is Jesus opening up the doors of heaven to us, but we still can't get into heaven without his divine mercy. Divine Mercy Sunday is the time when it reminds us that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus suffered. He had, after the, through the throughout the tritium, tr tritium, we celebrate, right? The Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then uh, we're waiting for uh, uh, Easter Sunday, and we realize there was a big suffering that had to happen. There was a big sacrifice Christ made for us, and all of a sudden, Resurrection Sunday, we know that he opened the doors of heaven. He conquered hell. By dying, he destroyed death, right? And he allowed us to, he opened the doors of heaven. But is that enough? Just because Jesus opened the doors of heaven, is that enough? It's actually not enough because I still can't make up for my sins without accepting Jesus's divine mercy. That's the most important part. You know, when we worry about sins that we have and we read the gospel, we see that everything can be forgiven, right? There's no sin that God cannot forgive, except, except sins against the Holy Spirit. And we all get terrified and we say, you know, this is where the, the Catholic mind comes in, the Catholic, if we're gonna do Catholic therapy, you know, a lot of people get anxious and they say, I don't wanna know what those sins are. I don't wanna know because I don't wanna commit them. Why would I want to sin and commit something where all of a sudden I can't get into heaven? I don't want to know what that is. It's very simple. It's the, it's the same sin that anybody would commit if they don't want to go into heaven. And that is not accepting Jesus's divine mercy. Jesus tells us, if you accept my divine mercy, there is nothing I won't forgive. And the feast of divine mercy reminds us that, yes, the doors of heaven are open on the resurrection, but in order for us to walk through those doors, this is why we celebrate eight days and it ends with divine mercy. We can't walk through those doors if we do not accept the divine mercy of Christ. That's the sin against the Holy Spirit to say, I'm not going to accept God's divine mercy. I don't believe that God's mercy is greater than my sins. I believe that I should have to go to hell. I don't feel that I can even go to confession. In fact, I don't even want to go to confession. It's over for me. That falling into that despair that's the psychological thing that we need to think about. Because if you come to the clinic here, if you come to the spiritual clinic and you say, Dr. Sandoval, I just don't think there's any salvation for me. I think I've sinned so much. God can't possibly accept me. God doesn't love me. This is no good. This is where we need to start to think, wait a minute, are we falling into despair? The sin of despair is going to lead us to not believing in God's great mercy, no longer believing that God is going to keep his promises with us, that God is going to keep that covenant that he promises us. In the old, We can look at it from the Old Testament. A lot of people say, oh, geez, you know, this is really bad. This is a God that kills. We need to get rid of God. Um, you know, this, this is not somebody who I want to be associated with. And, you know, they, they hold on to what they believe is the God as, as he represent, is represented in the Old Testament, a God of death. 
But the reality is if we look at God in the Old Testament, God's the same. God doesn't change Old Testament to New Testament. The difference is what? All of a sudden we see the New Testament and we say, oh, I like that better because Jesus talks about love. Well, Jesus does, does talk about love. He also talks about division. He says he, he came to this world to bring division, but he also talks about love. And this is where Jesus says, hey, now you're going to be ready to accept my love because I'm here to make up for your sins. I'm here to bring you mercy after I suffer, after I resurrect. I'm going to bring you divine mercy. That's what's going to allow you to come into heaven. If we hold on to the Old Testament, we have to look at we have yet to be redeemed. There was no hope for us at that. Well, there's always hope, of course. You know, we have the hope of the Proto-Evangelium from when God said, I'm going to send you my son. I'm going to send somebody to make up for the sin of Adam and Eve. All of a sudden, Jesus fulfills that. We're, we're holding on to that hope. But until it happens, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We see a lot of what might seem to be a heavy-handed God. But the reality is, if we look at the readings correctly, he is a very loving God. He sends us Christ, and Christ shows us the true face of the Father. He says, if you know who I am, you want to meet the Father, meet me. If you know who I am, you've already met the Father. Why is this important to talk about? Because during this season of the Easter octave, are we ready to accept God's mercy? Do we ever fall into despair? Do we ever fall into temptation and really believe that God's not going to forgive us? That even though the church seems to be happy, the church seems to be celebrating, you know, just because it's Easter doesn't mean people don't suffer from depression. Just because we're celebrating the octave of Easter and we're in whole, you know, this is the holiest of, uh, of, of the weeks. So last, last week we say Holy Week, but I should say this is the biggest celebration of the Catholic faith from Easter to Divine Mercy Sunday. We're now celebrating. A lot of people might not be feeling like celebrating, you know, mental illness, anxiety, despair, worries, concerns uh, for other people, people who are not stable, say, on their medications, experiencing psychosis, people who are going through medical illnesses, chronic medical illnesses, cancers, kidney failures, needing dialysis, things of that nature. That doesn't stop just because all of a sudden it's a celebration of the church. We can't say, wow, all that will go away. And you're going to realize that, you know, this week you're not going to have any problems. The reality is we still have these problems and sometimes it can be even harder when we see other people celebrating, when we see people truly enjoying the celebration, we can easily get frustrated and say, why do they enjoy that celebration? Why is it that they are happy and I am falling into this despair? I don't feel that God loves me. I don't feel that I'm doing the right things. It's supposed to be Easter. Everybody's supposed to be celebrating. All the kids are dressed in their pastel dresses. They went on an Easter egg hunt, maybe. You know, there's all this candy. There's all this food celebration. There's people who are, uh, you know, getting together as families. And somehow internally, some of us feel like I'm not there. I've got too much going on. You know, my wife isn't doing well. My dad's not doing well. My mom, my daughter, my son. There's a lot of burden that can happen. And just because it's the octave, just because the church is celebrating spiritually, sometimes it feels like we can't join in that fight. Well, one of the important things to hold on to this week is a couple things. We're not alone in this. I'm going to, if you, anybody's ever read uh, the diary of Sister Faustina, St. Faustina, the Divine Mercy, she's the one who received the message of Divine Mercy, and she was declared a saint by Pope John Paul II. You know, if you've ever read her diary, I'm going to read you a passage where she was falling into despair and she was falling into temptation and she wondered where God was in her life. So if we're feeling that way, the reason I want to read this is to remind us that we're not alone. You know, just because uh, we're, we're feeling that way, we feel very lonely, we feel very separated from everything. We're not the only ones feeling that way. And it's important to remember this week that God is shedding his mercy. God is saying, 
There's nothing you can do that I will not forgive. There's no way I will not accept you. There's no way I will not love you. In fact, this feast is so important that we can also do, um, we can go to mass, we can go to confession, we can uh, pray the rosary, we can focus on the divine mercy, and we can receive a plenary indulgence. What's the difference between a temporary and a plenary indulgence? Indulgences are supposed to help us expiate our sins, it's supposed to help us make up for the time that we're supposed to spend in purgatory, the time that we're supposed to be making up for our sins. Now, in order for a plenary indulgence to be complete, not only do we have to do the required pray for the Pope, go to Mass, receive uh, go to confession, receive the Eucharist, but we also have to have zero attachment to any sin, even venial sin. And this can be very, very challenging, right? So plenary indulgences, though, if you look at the promise associated with it, is if you can do this, if you can go to Mass and receive communion, you can go to confession within eight days of the feast, of the Divine Mercy Feast, if you can pray in Our Father, a Hail Mary, and a Glory Be for the Pope, you know, you can say your rosaries, pray. If you can do these things, and here's the kicker, and you can separate yourself, have no link, no desire, nothing to do with venial sins. So obviously, if we're there, we have nothing to do with mortal sins. But if we can have nothing to do with venial sins, then all of the punishment associated with our sins will be forgiven. That means that not just the spiritual punishment, but the temporal punishment, everything we have to do to make up for the sins in this world will no longer be associated with us. We will have nothing to do anymore as far as our sins. They will be cleansed completely. If we can do that, if we can work hard on that, that would be amazing. We're going to talk more about temptation and despair when we come back from the break. All right. Well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. As always, a pleasure to be here with our listeners. Um, it's always been great to receive your emails. If I'm a little bit delayed in getting back to you, uh, please let me know. Also, some of our listeners have had a hard time getting their emails through. For some reason, it seemed like they were blocked. I looked into it and I unblocked whatever uh, any, anybody who couldn't get through, but give us a call. Otherwise, you can go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and give us a call. Let us know if your messages aren't getting through or if you're having any challenges uh, uh, reaching me with any of your questions. Um, and other than that, I hope that we get to see a lot of you at our marriage and family uh, conference. It's always a pleasure to talk about marriage and family and relationships, because at the end of the day, that's what we are. We are one big Catholic Catholic family. Um, and within the sacrament of marriage, we have an awesome responsibility to keep the tradition of the church going. Imagine if there were only priests, if there were only nuns, what would happen to our faith? Our faith grows from families, from Catholic families, from good Catholic families come good Catholic priests, good Catholic nuns, and more good Catholic marriages. So that's important to consider. Today, we're talking about Divine Mercy Sunday, What's going on with divine mercy? What does that mean for us? And really, just because we are in a celebratory period of the church, we're celebrating Easter, the biggest feast that we have in the church, Christ conquered death, Christ rose from the dead. Does that mean that people are always happy? Or can there be despair? Can there be temptation? Do the saints experience that as well? Can we turn to some of our saints to see what was their experience when they were thinking about uh, coming closer to God, because really at the end of the day, you know, if we're looking at divine mercy and we're hearing things. We're hearing that Jesus is going to forgive 
all of our sins, um, especially if we can do the plenary indulgence. And at the end of the show, I'm going to tell you how to get that plenary indulgence. Um, if we can, if we can think about that, if we're if we're trying to get closer to God, but all of a sudden it doesn't feel like we are. It feels like we're separated, or it feels like God's not there, or we can't do it, or we're too unholy, or we're too big of sinners. That might actually deter us. It might frustrate us. And that's really what you know. That's what the devil wants. The devil wants us to to get so frustrated. The devil wants us to be afraid and to lose our confidence in God. But if God has given us a promise, God's going to keep it. God's going to say, this is, if, if I'm telling you that I'm sending you my son so that the doors of heaven can be open, he kept that promise. Why not? If Jesus told us, hey, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, he kept that promise. We're going to celebrate Pentecost a little bit down the road. But we need to look at this. You know, Christmas is really the way I see it is God keeping his promise of sending us his son. Easter is Jesus keeping his promise of I'm going to open the doors of heaven. And Pentecost is uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit coming to us. So it's interesting to see that. But I'm going to take a passage here from Divine Mercy from the Diary of Sister Faustina. If anybody's ever read this or ever looked at it, it's a very, very thick diary. It's all about her experience with Christ and with the uh, with the Christ's message of divine mercy. That's what it comes down to. It's broken up into paragraphs, and it's very, very thick, but you don't have to read it all at once. You can take it paragraph by paragraph or theme by theme. Um, and this one was important because this one's titled, this is paragraph number 77, or entry number 77, I should say. And it's uh, titled Darkness and Temptations. Let's read about this. Let's see what Sister Faustina went through because a lot of times we romanticize what it means to be a saint or the lives of saints. We imagine, oh, you know, they were so holy. They were so close to God and they were so close to Our Lady and they were so close to holiness. I could never be that holy. I could. I can't do that. Man, I wish I could be as happy as they were or holy as they were. But the reality is, once you start reading about their lives or if we look at their experience, it never comes without suffering. It never comes without some form of darkness, some form of uh, being troubled or bothered as they're trying to get closer to God. There's moments of darkness. If you're reading St. John of the Cross, you know, and he talks about the dark night of the soul, you know, and if you read about St. Teresa of Avila and you see that there's a lot of internal torture that happens. So if you're feeling a little heavy during the season when we're supposed to be celebrating, maybe you can take some souls in this and realize that just because we feel a certain way doesn't mean that that's what's happening. That's what I usually tell my patients. You know, we've got to separate the facts from the feelings. The feelings can betray us. But we have to look at the facts when we are scared or when we're in despair. Let's look at what uh, Sister Faustina says. This is darkness and temptation. And she says, my mind became dimmed in a strange way. No truth seemed clear to me. How scary is that, right? Our minds become dark and there is no truth. There's no, we're not even sure what's going on. And she says, when people spoke to me about God, my heart was like a rock. I could not draw from it a single sentiment of love for him. When I tried by an act of the will to remain close to him, I experienced great torments, and it seemed to me that I was only provoking God to an even greater anger. So think about it. Have you ever experienced this where all of a sudden you feel like God is so angry at us, and then all of a sudden we try to get closer to him, we try to pray, we try to be in his presence, we try to go to church, we try to follow our sacramental life, and it feels like things became even worse. Our hearts are really like a rock, as she says. Then she says, um, it was an absolutely impossible for me to meditate as I had been accustomed to do in the past. I felt in my soul a great void, and there was nothing from which I could fill it. 
I began to suffer from a great hunger and a yearning for God, but I saw my utter powerlessness. I tried to read slowly, sentence by sentence, and to meditate in this way, but this also was of no avail. I understood nothing of what I had read. The abyss of my misery was constant before my eyes. Every time I entered the chapel for some spiritual exercise, I experienced even worse torments and temptations. More than once, all through Holy Mass, I had to struggle against blasphemous thoughts which were forcing themselves to my lips. I felt an aversion for the Holy Sacraments, and it seemed to me that I was not profiting from them in any way. It was only out of obedience to my confessor that I frequented them, and this blind obedience was for me the only path I could follow and my very last hope of survival. The priest explained to me that these were trials sent by God and that in the situation I was in, not only was I not offending God, but I was most pleasing to him. This is a sign, he told me, that God loves you very much and that he has great confidence in you, but he is sending you such trials. But these words brought me no comfort. It seemed to me that they did not apply to me at all. So let's think about this. You know, a lot of times, especially in deliverance ministry, a lot of people come and they say, oh, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm being possessed or I'm being influenced by demons or I'm being, you know, tormented in different ways. Um, and I don't doubt it. I don't doubt that they're really experiencing that. But the reality is when we experience these trials, because if we listen to what Sister Faustina said, she's in a dark place, you know, and at the same time, as she's listening to her confessor, her spiritual director, she's getting closer to God. Why is that? Why is it? Because we have to go through the trials. I can only imagine what our Lord experienced last week when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was telling God his Father. He said, if this cup can pass me by, I don't want to drink from it. I don't want this torture. What a dark place that must be to know that you're about to be killed. You're betrayed by your friends. Well, how could we not go through the same suffering? How could we not go through that same suffering to experience the joys of the resurrection? Here we have Sister Faustina, who Christ is delivering her the message of great mercy, and she's in a very, very dark place. Let's look a little bit about this. Let's read back a little bit, see what she said. She said, the abyss of my misery, an abyss of misery. How many times do we feel like there's just no hope, that we're in a very dark place, that nothing's ever going to be good again? A lot of people think, maybe I'm going through a depression. we got to ask ourselves, are we going through a depression or a spiritual trial? They can seem very, very similar, you know, and just because it's a spiritual trial doesn't mean that it's demonically influenced either. Sometimes God will allow darkness to enter our lives or what feels like darkness without necessarily being evil, but just a, a clouding of the soul, a clouding of the mind to see if we can struggle through that. It's a bit of a challenge, if you will. I think it's God's way of helping us get rid of unnecessary things spiritually. But let's look at what she said, because what's important to look at is how do we feel versus what's really happening. Remember, she said that she experienced even worse torments and temptations more than once all through Mass, and she had to struggle against blasphemous thoughts which were forcing themselves to her lips. It's important to consider this, because if you look at that sentence, these thoughts were forcing themselves to her lips. She was saying things or forcing, she was being forced to say things that were unholy, that were blasphemous, but they were not her own thoughts. She didn't want these thoughts. The fact that she found these thoughts revolting is what's pleasing to God. God is saying, are you ready to suffer for me? Because when you do, if you're ready to be with me, this is there's a life of suffering in this world. You're not supposed to be comfortable just yet. My divine mercy is there, but you need to see it with the eyes of faith. But listen to what her confessor told her, because he said, 
This is a sign, he told me, that God loves you very much and that he has great confidence in you since he is sending you such trials. We have to remember that. We have to take solace in that. This is where the divine mercy comes in. If we feel that we're experiencing trials, we have to remember that God's mercy is still there and he might be sending us these trials for our benefit. So sometimes a good way to look at this is instead of asking, why is this happening to me? God, why are you doing this to me? We might look at this from a little bit of a, of a more spiritual sleuth and say, God, you're doing something for me. Why are you, Why is this happening for me? What is going on for me in this time? I'm, I think this is going to be a time of growth for me. There's some kind of a benefit that I'm getting by going through this trial. Let's see. Let's read on in the paragraph. It says, one thing did surprise me. It often happened that at the time when I was suffering greatly, these terrible torments would disappear suddenly just as I was approaching the confessional. That's interesting. But as soon as I had left the confessional, all these torments would again seize me with even greater ferocity. I would then fall on my face before the blessed sacrament, repeating these words. Even if you kill me, I still will trust in you. Now, what were those? What was that from? Where did, where did she? What was she quoting from? Even if you kill me, still will I trust in you. She was quoting from the book of Job, chapter 13, verse 15. Why? Because she was uh, the book of Job, excuse me, the book of Job. Why? Because she was experiencing some of the same trials. It was the book of Job, chapter 13, verse 15. Even if you kill me, I will still trust in you. Do we have that level of trust? There's darkness going on in my life. I don't know what it is, but I'm turning to you, God. I am turning to you. It seemed to me that I would die in these agonies. She felt like she was in the moment of death. How many times do we feel that? Do we feel such darkness that we might be in the moment of death? But the most terrible thought for me was the conviction that I had been rejected by God. Then other thoughts came to me. Why strive to acquire virtues and why do good works? Why mortify and annihilate yourself? What good is it to, good is it to take vows, to pray, to sacrifice and immolate yourself? Why sacrifice myself all the time? What good is it if I am already rejected by God? Why all these efforts? And here, God alone knew what was going on in my heart. That's the key right there. If we look at this, she's being tormented. How many times do we feel that way? Why do anything at all? It seems like there's no hope for me. I'm being rejected. This is the key. This is the key to divine mercy right here that we're going to talk about when we come back from the book. We're never rejected. All right. Well, welcome back to the Dr. Louis Sandoval Show. I am your host, Dr. Louis Sandoval. As always, a pleasure to be here with you. Today, we are talking about Divine Mercy, the Feast of Divine Mercy Sunday, and why it is important for us as Catholics. A lot of us right now might be thinking, you know, gosh, we already celebrated Easter. Easter is over. But the reality is, no, Easter is a bigger celebration. It's Easter tide. Right, And really what we're in right now is the octave of Easter, meaning the eight-day celebration. And the Catholic faith, our big solemnities, have eight days worth of celebrating. So when you're going to church, you're going to notice that there's a lot of alleluias and a lot of a few different prayers. That is because we are still celebrating Easter. We don't just celebrate Easter Sunday and say, okay, wow, Easter Sunday was great. Got together with the family. There were a lot of pastel colors. Some kids saw the Easter bunny and got some candy. And then it's over. And then all of a sudden, we, you know, it's Monday and then we're done. No, the church is still celebrating. We are still actually in the midst of the party, if you will. And when is this festivity over? When are we done celebrating? It's the octave, so we got to look at eight days. The feast starts with Easter Sunday, and we have to look at how do we end the feast? 
it's important to know how to end the feast because a feast is very important. We talked earlier in the show when we have the feast of Christmas, which is also an octave, it ends with the with Mary, Mother of God, right? The beginning of the year. So January 1st. Why is that important? Because it takes us back to the original feast. It's a complete perfect circle. The birth of Christ ends with the mother of God. How could it not? We're talking about the birth of Christ. You can't separate a mother from the child. We talk, we're talking about the birth. We're talking about Christ coming into the world. And we're talking about Our Lady, who was the vessel of Theotokos, who carried Christ uh, and brought him into the world. That's Christmas time. What about Easter? It's easier to understand, I think, Christmas because we're talking about a, a mother and a son. In Easter time, we're talking about the resurrection of Christ, and then we're talking about Divine Mercy Sunday. We're ending the feast with Divine Mercy Sunday. Those are the bookends of the festivity. Why is that important? Because on Easter Sunday, we think, oh, this is great. Jesus rose from the dead, so he opened the gates of heaven for me, and that's that's it. It's done. Everything's done. It's, it's been conquered. No, we have to look at how does this come full circle? It doesn't matter if Christ opened the gates of heaven for us if we can't walk through the gates of heaven. And the only way for us to walk through those open gates is to accept his divine mercy. There's no question about it. We have to think like Catholics on this one because a lot of times we just think, oh, Easter, that's great. Oh, the sacrifice that's happening at mass, that's great. And if you think about it, why do we celebrate the mass? What's the point of going to mass every Sunday? We're celebrating the Passover. Every time we're celebrating the death and the resurrection of Christ. Every Sunday, every eight days, we need to celebrate the fact that the gates of heaven were open. But in this particular solemnity, when we formally celebrate Easter, we look at how it bookends with divine mercy, because if it were not for divine mercy, those doors could be open all day long. The gates of heaven could be open all day long, but we would not be able to enter because it's through Christ's divine mercy that we are able to pass that threshold, that we're able to get through those open doors. Otherwise, it's going to be a blockade. We were reading about from Sister Faustina's diary that people don't always have to be happy, especially if we're saints, we're coming closer to God. Sometimes the opposite seems to happen. And it's strange. We wonder, why does God work in this way? What's happening? I'm trying to get closer to God, but I'm feeling very dark. I don't feel good at all inside. Well, let's keep reading and see how was Sister Faustina able to overcome this? If you read her diary and you read the entry of her diary, we read entry number 77, and that talked about how she was feeling dark. She ends it with a very, very important passage. And she says, and here, now remember, she's talking about being tormented. Tormented where she feels that, what's the point of doing anything? What's the point of taking vows? What's the point of praying? What's the point of making sacrifice? There's no, there's no way I'm going to get into, into heaven because I'm already rejected by God. There's nothing I can do. How many of us have ever felt that way? She ends out that entry by saying, and here, God alone knew what was going on in my heart. I think that that's key. When we're being tortured, sometimes we think that we're alone. But the reality is, is God is still with us and God is seeing what's going on. We have to remember that because in our darkness, are we able to turn our heart to God still in the midst of the darkness? She read that beautiful passage from the book of Job, which says, even, you, even if you kill me, still will I trust in you. Do we have that level of trust in God? I hope we do. Let's read the next passage because we got to see how does this resolve? We can't leave Sister Faustina just in the midst of darkness, right? Does God just leave us in the darkness? No, there is some merit to this. She says, now it's the entry 78. Once when I was being crushed by these dreadful sufferings, I went into the chapel and said from the bottom of my soul, do what you will with me, O Jesus. I will adore you in everything. May your will be done in me. O oh, my Lord and my God, and I will praise your infinite mercy. 
Through this act of submission, she says, these terrible torments left me. Suddenly I saw Jesus, who said to me, I am always in your heart. An inconceivable joy entered my soul, and a great love of God set my heart aflame. I see that God never tries us beyond what we are able to suffer. Oh, I fear nothing. If God sends such great suffering to a soul, he upholds it with an even greater grace, although we are not aware of it. One act of trust at such moments gives greater glory to God than a whole hour's past in prayer filled with consolations. Now I see that if God wants to keep a soul in darkness, no book or confessor can bring it in light. Look at this. This is it's kind of a test from God. He's saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me enough that even if things feel dark, to know that I am still there and I will still be your joy and I will still be your happiness? Do we have that level of trust? This is what she said. Let's read back a little bit, because if we're in the midst of that darkness, what did Sister Faustina do? What's going to work from us? She said she went into the sap, into the chapel and said from the bottom of her soul, do what you will with me, O Jesus. I will adore you in everything. May your will be done in me, O my Lord and my God, and I will praise your infinite mercy. So she said pretty much there's nothing here. I, I abandoned my will. I leave my will to you. Do what you will with me. You know, when your will be done in me, I will praise your infinite mercy. So no matter what happens to me, I will not stop praising you. That's what's that, that's the bottom line for me. My, all I want to do is praise you no matter what happens, no matter what tortures come my way. You will be, you're it. I am nothing. And then it says, through this act of submission, these terrible torments left me. Another word for submission there is saying through this act of humility, through this act of recognizing that, it's only through God that we are anything. In fact, I am nothing. And if God chooses to send me periods of darkness, I still love God because I have to trust that that is what he wants. And what happens? All of a sudden, she does this humility, this, this sense of saying, I don't know what's going on around me, but I leave it in your hands, Lord. And what happens? Everything turns to light. She says she saw Jesus who said to her, I am always in your heart. Inconceivable joy entered her soul. What a great love. God has set my heart aflame. I see that God never tries us beyond what we are able to suffer. She says she feared nothing. God sent her, said, and she feared nothing if God sends such great suffering to his soul. She says he upholds it, upholds it with even greater grace, although we are not aware of it. One act of trust is such, one act of trust. This is key because we're going to talk right now about how to get that plenary indulgence. But it says one act of trust at such moments gives greater glory to God than whole hours passed in prayer filled with consolations. I think that that's one of the biggest keys here because if we're, do we have that level of trust? Do we have that level of trust that Jesus is going to, in his divine mercy, save us? That regardless of what my sins are, if I am repenting of my sins, that I can actually make it to heaven, that Jesus' love is much greater than any of my shortcomings. Do I have that level of trust? Because if I do, then nothing's going to conquer us. Nothing's going to conquer the way I think, the way I feel. And this is what's important in terms of divine mercy. God's not going to send us more than we can handle. And God's going to lift our souls. And all we have to do is that one act of humility. A lot of times we want to pray and we say, oh, what other deliverance prayers can I pray? I'm going to read the whole book on deliverance prayers. I'm going to read the whole Bible. I'm going to you know, get more and more prayers. I'm going to have a priest pray for me. I'm going to do all these different things in order to remove any darkness or any ill will from my life. When the reality is, if we learn from Sister Faustina, what we really have to do is condition our hearts just a little bit, just for a moment, 
just take that time to tell Jesus, I am nothing and I trust in you wholeheartedly. Notice that's the message of divine mercy. Jesus, I trust in you. I don't trust in what I'm feeling. I don't trust in what I'm thinking. I don't trust in anything but in your will. And I want to focus on just you in my life. And that level of humility, that submission to Christ will make everything go away. It puts Christ number one in our hearts. Well, how do we get that? How do we get that plenary indulgence on Divine Mercy Sunday? I'm going to put a link in an article. This article is from a few years back, probably about three years back from the National Catholic Register. Um, and it tells us how we get that plenary indulgence. And it says, uh, it's titled, How to Get a Plenary Indulgence on Divine Mercy Sunday. And it has a quote from Christ from, from the diary. It says, I want to grant a complete pardon to the souls that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion on the Feast of My Mercy. The article says, through private revelation to St. Faustina, Jesus revealed, um, I want to grant that complete pardon to souls and will go to confession and receive Holy Communion on the Feast of My Mercy. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion will obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. Remember, this is, this is a, a total complete remission of sins and punishment. This is a plenary indulgence. And we must trust in divine mercy. So, this is according to Robert Stackpole, the director of the St. John Paul II Institute of Divine Mercy, an apostle of the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. The most special grace promised by our Lord for Mercy Sunday is nothing less than the equivalent of complete renewal of baptismal grace in the soul, complete forgiveness, remission of sins and punishment. Now, St. John Paul II not only declared Divine Mercy Sunday universal feast of the church, but in 2002, he attached a plenary indulgence to it. This made private this made private revelations promise official as the Holy See institutionalized the promise in the form of an indulgence. These are the usual the, the usual three conditions of the sacramental confession, Eucharistic communion, and prayer for intentions of the Supreme Pontiff. So again, in order to gain that plenary indulgence this week, what do we have to do? We have to go to confession, we have to receive the Eucharist. And we have to pray for the intentions of the Holy Father. Usually in our Father, a Hail Mary and a Glory be will suffice. But we have to pray for the intentions of the Holy Father. Okay, so those three things. But that's standard for any plenary indulgence, okay? So that's that's fine. But what is the extra thing we have to do for divine mercy? What's attached to divine mercy? It says these are the specific conditions that, we have, that are required on Divine Mercy Sunday. It says, in any church or chapel, in a spirit that is completely detached from the affection for a sin, even a venial sin, take part in the prayers and devotions held in honor of divine mercy. So again, any church or chapel, if there's anything that's going on with divine mercy, detach yourself from the world from any form of sin and take part in those prayers. Again, this weekend, I'm going to be at St. Madeline Church in Pomona. We're going to be doing a divine mercy retreat. So that would be a great place to do that. And then it says, or... In the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, expose or reverse or still in the, in the tabernacle, recite the Our Father and the Creed, adding a devout prayer to the merciful Lord Jesus. Something as simple as saying, merciful Jesus, I trust in you. As long as we do that, so again, Holy Communion, Confession, prayers for the Holy Father, and then either take place in either a retreat or an event on Divine Mercy, or in front of the Blessed Sacrament, make sure that you recite the Our Father, the Creed, and just say something like, merciful Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. My Lord, I trust in you. And we get those plenary indulgences. Remember, the big feast, Easter, divine mercy, gets us into heaven. And until next time, this is Dr. Sandoval saying, keep it Catholic. <laughs>